Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. As climate patterns shift, the methods for maintaining forest health are evolving. Tribal forestry experts are working with state and federal government agencies to prevent the most destructive forest fires. And after a major fire, officials must set the foundation for recovery, hopefully speeding up the natural process of regrowth. Coming up this hour, we'll explore the tribal knowledge that goes into creating healthy and sustainable natural forests. We're back after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Cherokee Nation is calling on Congress to honor the commitment made by the U.S. government in the 1800s to seat a non-voting delegate from the Cherokee Nation in the House of Representatives. Cherokee Nation citizen Kim Teehee has been chosen as the delegate. Rhonda Lovaldo recently spoke with her about a national campaign started by the Oklahoma tribe to get her seated. The government and the Cherokee Nation reached an agreement through a treaty nearly 200 years ago that committed a Cherokee delegate a seat in the House. The Senate ratified it and President Andrew Jackson signed it into law. The tribe says the long-standing agreement does not expire. This fall, the Cherokee Nation, its citizens and its allies mobilized across the country to call on Congress to act before Congress adjourns in December. Tihi spoke on the efforts to do that. We've had a lot of questions and we've had to go back deep into uh, historical documents, Federalist Papers to answer questions, um, but we've not heard opposition. We've just heard a lot of questions and uh, that thankfully we're being asked and we're get, being afforded the opportunity to respond to as well. Tihi also talked about her priorities for the Cherokee Nation, like adequate funding for services and infrastructure, improve health care, increase access to the internet, but also to take on action on a language bill to help preserve native languages. Language preservation is a huge, huge priority for uh, Cherokee Nation. And so we actually have a bill pending in Congress now called the Durban Feeling Native American Languages Act. And it's named for uh, the late Durban Feeling, who was what we call our modern day Sequoia, who revitalized and really enhanced and set the foundation for all the language preservation efforts we do today. Tihi has served as the tribe's vice president of government relations and was a senior policy advisor for Native American affairs during the Obama administration. A House committee is set to hold a hearing on the Cherokee Nation delegate on Wednesday. This is Rhonda Lovaldo for National Native News. A program that aims to train Alaska Native people to become rural pilots opened a new facility recently in Anchorage. Emily Schwing reports. The new hangar is now the central spot for students interested in pursuing a career in aviation. CKT owner and certified flight instructor Jamie Clays told a crowd of nearly 60 people there are holes to fill when it comes to aviation in rural Alaska. There's a lack of service there due to pilot shortages, due to a mechanic shortage. CKT Aviation contracts with Alaska Excel to provide pilot training to students from communities off the road system. Alaska Excel offers additional intensive courses beyond general high school curriculum to students from rural Alaska school districts. 
Lori Evan graduated from high school in Upper Kalskag last year. She first started taking classes in Excel's aviation program when she was in seventh grade. I actually flew a plane like unexpectedly and I flew it all by myself and that like inspired me to come and do more and it was my goal for years. Lee Ryan is the president of Ryan Air, an Alaska-based airline that serves most of western Alaska. He says he wants to hire pilots who grew up just like he did, off the road system in Unalakleet. And they understand the importance of safety, the importance of um, one foot in front of the other, the importance of navigation, situational awareness, the culture. Um, they just they get it, right? So it makes it so easy to serve the people you're trying to serve. So it's like it's the missing piece of the pie. Ryan recently hired one commercial pilot out of Alaska's Excel program, and he's got his eye on the progress of at least one other. In Anchorage, I'm Emily Schwing. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Make sure your holiday checklist includes avoiding the latest holiday scams. Scammers count on you being too busy and distracted to pay attention, so visit aarp.org slash holiday scams to get up-to-date tips on the latest scams. AARP supports this show. What if someone said you owe money to the IRS and have to pay with a gift card? Or they ask for a gift card so you can avoid going to jail? Stop, it's a scam. Gift cards are for gifts, not payments. Report scams at reportfraud.ftc.gov. Support by the Federal Trade Commission. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Threats to forests range from tree diseases, drought, wildfires, and invasive species. In New Mexico, some pueblos are still recovering from the after-effects of the Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon fire that devastated the northern part of the state earlier this year. In western Montana, the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes are working towards combating an invasive disease that has plagued whitebark pine trees. Today we'll talk with tribal forestry experts from different parts of the country. We'll learn how they're fighting these threats using either modern or traditional techniques and the partnerships they foster with federal agencies and other groups engaged in improving forest health. Please join the conversation. Are the forests healthy in your community? What's your tribe doing to maintain or improve forest health? Why is forest health important? Join our conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. You can also post on our social media. That handle is 1-800-99-NATIVE. Tommy Cabe is speaking with us from Cherokee, North Carolina. He is the Forest Research Specialist for the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians, and he is Eastern Band Cherokee. Tommy, welcome to Native America Calling. Shio. Shio, Tommy. thank you. Great to have you on the show. And uh, the Eastern Band, you folks are nestled there in the Smoky Mountains, surrounded by heavily forested woodlands. What are your tribe's main concerns regarding forest health? Well, we are concerned about, the, you know, like a lot of people are in southern Appalachia, just the, the plethora of forest invasives and the dynamic of you know, deforestation due to, you know, encroachment, people moving to this area, 
Um, and we're also, we, Eastern Band, are concerned about the lack of fire in our landscape. And also, we are concerned about the lack in um, artisan material from our forest resource, resources that, you know, have helped us thrive over the past millennia with um, our lifestyle and also, you know, an economic interest. So we're concerned, you know, with food sovereignty, um, access to other federal lands that historically were our ancestral homelands, and uh, we're in the process of entering into um, certain opportunities that are available to federally recognized tribe to merge some of our traditional ecological knowledge and Western science for access and sustainable practices and management in the future here and in, um, in our region. So thank you for asking. Absolutely. And tell us more, what types of trees and, and other plants do you have there in your woods in Cherokee area? Well, we have a deciduous deciduous forest. Um, most of the people that know Southern Appalachia know its diversity, uh, subtropical as it's been compared to. We have a lot of mixed timber types, mixed hardwoods. Um, we got select evergreen species. Um, some of the trees of interest to us are white oak, hickory, walnut. Um, gosh, just about all of them had a you know cultural presence and purpose in our in our lifestyle, and still do. And so we're, you know, we're kind of, you know, we're we're uh, being asked now um, from our federal partners about some of this knowledge, and and so we're exploring these opportunities to kind of rebridge the trust issue, and to also help, you know, our federal partners to sustainably manage um, its resources for generations unborn. Well, earlier you shared uh, the risk of encroachment, people moving in, uh, a lack of, of fire over the years. And and what are some programs, what are some undertakings you folks are doing to address those issues? Well, here just recently, as of last week, uh, we, Eastern Band Cherokee Indians, have entered into, I believe, the only Tribal Force Protection Act and Good Neighbor Authority east of the Mississippi um, as far as um, – you know, engage in those opportunities with the Forest Service neighbors. And so what those arrangements allow is for us to co-steward uh, landscapes of interest. And obviously, you know, historically, the Cherokee, we occupied, you know, seven to eight states in the southeast. And so we had a vast ancestral homelands. And uh, for us here immediately, we plan on um, utilizing, bringing fire, cultural fire back to the landscape you know, for the purposes of oak health, oak regeneration, and for access for arts and interest, and you know, like I said, for to to also put our reinstate our footprint on these landscapes with intent through knowledge, historical knowledge. So. Well, it sounds like a really interesting partnership, and uh, this is with the Forest Service, and are there other local or regional uh, partners or organizations that are also involved in this? Yes, there's, you know, we've got a, a we have developed a, a, a thicker relationship with the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, and we've, um, have, are also doing the same thing with the Blue Ridge Parkway. Both of those are you know, entities underneath the Department of Interior, which is, you know, a lot of people know in Indian country, we know about the Department of Interior because it's where the BIA, Bureau of Indian Affairs, also functions out of. So we all, you know, have a, a, a similar format and operation underneath those those um, those um, 
entities. However, you know, and um, we also have a a sovereign right to some of these landscapes or all these landscapes. I mean, we're not just an interest group. You know, we kind of have well, we do have an inherent right to be a part of this landscape because it's in our DNA. It's where we're of. And uh, these entities have been very open to hear our concerns from the communal level, not just our department level, because we as a department are the window of our community. And it's been an exciting time to bridge these gaps, to see the level of respect being conducted across the board, and to to witness, you know, the rekindling of trust in a different way in the 21st century. So uh, it's uh, it's been a good time to be, you know, part of this movement. Um, we feel like we have a lot to share and a lot to offer, um, not only to the human dim- dimension of this this area, but also to the uh, natural landscape as well. And Tommy, you touched on, on the lack of fire. So has this created just a lot of underbrush and a lot of fuels that have built up over the years? And is that a, a main concern then, just reducing some of those heavy fuels and some of these other risks that, that arise when, when, when fires don't occur frequently enough? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to throw any of uh, my uh, Forest Service brethren or park brethren under this, or sister and all that, 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 for that matter, underneath the bus. But I should also mention that the, you know the Southeast kind of it does get underfunded uh, on a national level because you know most of the fire goes out out west for you know the vast wildland fires happen. Uh, please note that the listening audiences out there that the Southeast does do more prescribed burning per acre than anywhere in the country. And uh, we do, the Southeast has been doing that, you know, for a long time and kind of, you know, as far as the funding goes, kind of still does not meet the the need funding-wise to do that. And in these mountains, you know, we've kind of witnessed that, you know, it's it's a reflection of, of, um, I guess you could say, the the touchy issue about doing prescribed burns in some of these areas based off of slope and fuel load capacity, but uh, uh, the the suppression is going to continue to get worse if we don't advocate and support, you know, bringing burning back to this landscape for a, a plethora of opportunity to for the landscape and reduction of invasives uh, by reducing fuel by you know, putting you know, some stuff back on in the in the soil components so that regeneration, oak regeneration can happen. Um, you know, just the lack of fire does does really you know raise a concern during this you know era we're going through where you know climate people say climate change. I have a tendency to not really use climate change, but climate trends are you know be- becoming more predictable, becoming a, more of a concern. Um, and I, I believe that you know the the lack of the lack of burning some of these fuels off could you know be detrimental in the future for some of the areas that aren't really susceptible to to uh, to uh, burning like our mesic coves, which is the poplar poplar coves, moist coves where buckeye and some maple grow, and that's where a lot of um, traditional plants grow. They could become more vulnerable to wildland fire and. There's been little to no research on you know how these species could respond or should respond in a catastrophic event. In 2016, the Smokies, you know, that's when Gatlinburg, um, you know, witnessed the you know catastrophic fires, and um, that's just the result of you know well, number one, the, the conditions were perfect for a fire to really take off, 
Number two, I think a lot of people wanting to point the finger at the Smokies and the lack of burning, but you know, a lot of people doing that, you know, probably weren't informed about, you know, some of the policies of what the park is as a preservation. But at the same time, you know, I, I think that uh, we're living in an area, an era where um, some of the stuff historically just simply isn't working for us from a management perspective. And I think that, um, I think you know, my my uh, brethren here in Cherokee and my ancestors and, and uh, for holding on to some of these critical, you know, ecological knowledge values that can be applied to the landscape to demonstrate, you know, the things that we have known as the first peoples of this landscape still work and we're an opportunity to showcase that. So, um, so yeah, if we, if we don't, you know, start being stewards and start being active with the land and, uh, you know, another catastrophic, catastrophic event could happen. Um, I don't like to put fire and disturbance into the same sentence because a lot of people say, what's well, a disturbance by fire? Fire is a natural act, uh, especially when it's a wooden fire, or wildland fire, or, or woods fire. It's part of the cycle, and indigenous people have always known that it needs to be utilized and respected and not be, you know, it doesn't deserve to be in the category of disturbance, uh, more or less of a, an event that is uh, beneficial to the land. This is Tommy Cabe speaking with us live from Cherokee, North Carolina. He is the forest resource specialist for the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians, and he's describing uh, the importance of fire traditionally amongst indigenous people and our understanding of fire and how, in many ways, it is a life force. It is not just about destruction, contrary in some popular opinions. Folks, we've got a lot more on the show. We're talking about forest health today, and we're checking in with forestry experts in different parts of Native America who will provide insights and expertise into the challenges that they face. Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. We'll be right back. A number of podcasts by Native producers offer unique insights into everything from sobriety to current events to tribal language revitalization. There are a lot of choices competing for listeners' time. We'll take a look at a handful of Native podcasts that are worth checking out on the next Native America Calling. Did you know more than 51,000 Native and Indigenous people are living with epilepsy in the United States? Epilepsy is a neurological disorder that causes recurring, sudden, unprovoked surges of abnormal electrical activity in the brain. Call 1-800-332-1000 to get information and resources. Help someone you know by learning seizure first aid at epilepsy.com slash first aid. The Epilepsy Foundation supports this show. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're speaking with tribal forestry experts about the state of their forests. We also want to hear from you, so please join the conversation. 1-800-996-2848. Our phone lines are open. Producers are standing by, so please give us a call. 1-800-996-2848. We'll get your comments on the air. We're speaking now with Tommy Cabe from Cherokee, North Carolina. He is a forest resource specialist. And Tommy, before break, you were telling us uh, about the importance of fire from a traditional perspective. And, and please tell us, how is the Eastern Band incorporating some of this traditional indigenous knowledge with regard to maintaining forest health there on your tribal lands? 
Okay, one example was a few years. Well, it's been a, a while back. We were, you know, starting to carve out this relationship with the Forest Service on our White Oak White Oak interest, and um, for basket making, and um, talking about applying some type of silvicultural practice to enhance that. And the, you know, the first step was to see these oak trees in the wild, you know, when they were ready for harvest for basket making, and so. I coordinated a meeting with the Forest Service folks out of the Southern Research Station out of um, Blacksburg, Virginia, and Asheville, North Carolina, the Forest Service SRS headquarters. And uh, my prop, my family property in my Burtown community here on the Koala boundary, you know, had a, a very good representation of what a white oak tree for basket making looks like. So. So we took, you know, a handful of experts from the Forest Service, silviculturalists and traditionalists and uh, basket-making uh, folks from our community and collectively had a meeting in the field to showcase just what they look like. And um, some of the basket-makers were there going over, you know, the dimensions of the, the tree, what they look for, and to give the audience an idea what that is. It's a white oak stem grown in the wild that is anywhere from 46 inches in diameter all the way up to 12, 14, 16 inches, depending on how straight it is for about six to eight feet. Um, the, that stem has to be free from any kind of sucker sprouting or any type of deformity. Uh, typically, anywhere else in the country, that dimension of white oak, you know, in that, in that uh, class, that DBH class, would probably be cut for pulp or for slash. Um, a basket maker could get a hold of that stem and probably make two medium-sized baskets that would yield anywhere from $800 now to $1,000. So there's a, you know, there's obviously an economic interest, but, you know, besides that, there's, you know, the basket making art that, you know, is wrapped up in our cultural identity is shared with that tree. And so <clears throat> in looking at this this landscape, um, you know, historically, that was, like I said, my family's property. We harvested firewood selectively in that landscape, um, had some good regeneration. Uh, my father was uh, was the type of person who would burn it off if he could, anytime he could. And so there was a couple of times as a kid, I accidentally set the woods on fire, and he just said, it's okay, let it burn. And so we had we had that kind of uh, – we kind of didn't pay attention to what Smokey Bear was trying to tell us then, eh? But uh, – but um, over time, what happened was that you know to this day, you know we've we've had um, a couple of, of uh, trees harvested from that site for basket for the basket makers. And during this um, this meeting, you know, two of the basket makers were there, and one of the you know we brought up the we brought up fire as a tool to manage. And this is what kind of spawned us to move quickly. Was we had one basket maker to say that he thought that burning may not be such a good idea because it could scorch, you know, the tree and kind of lead to it not producing good splits. Well, the other one was contrary, and he said that he thought if it was burned correctly and under the right, you know, severity conditions, that it could benefit, you know, because the tree could get stronger due to the burning. And um, fortunately, the new BIA fire managing officer is a high school friend of mine, and uh, he's from Cherokee, and we said let's make some ha let's make something happen, dude. And uh, so he's been working with the, in the federal system and with the BIA for a long time, and we uh, 
marked out that our our property to be uh, utilized as a cultural burn for the sake of you know witnessing what fire how fire enhances those or damages standing oaks that are ready to be made for or made ready for basket making. And so last year we launched our first kind of uh, I guess you could say it was our first cultural burn ever in the history of the Koala Boundary being here for basket making. And so we burn it off. We got it under a burn rotation. We're going to go back in there and start doing, you know, the science part of it, re, you know, counting regen, counting, you know, seeing, you know, some of these trees that are ready for harvest, uh, for basket, cut them down, let the basket makers, you know, see if it's better or worse. And so we've got this kind of preliminary uh, uh, um, mm -hmm. effort started. Uh, there's been no work done from a science, fire science perspective and cultural value on a resource like that, to my knowledge. So, so we're in the beginning phases of that. Uh, the Tribal Forest Protection Act that we just signed is going to be extended to their landscape to do this type of work and evaluation. And so we're excited to see, you know, how our community can be involved. I know it really, it really does enlighten the human dimension from us being, you know, native of this landscape to know that these efforts and these partnerships are are going on for the benefit of our interest and from who we are and who our identity is. And so uh, so that's what we're, that's an example of what we're, we've got going on with, uh, you know, utilizing fire as a silver cultural tool, tool for cultural resources. So. Well, Tommy, thanks for the, that background. And uh, we'll all be really interested to see how that all evolves. And um, I, can, I can see these two traditional folks um, having this little debate over uh, what to do about these trees with regard to, to how well they split for those baskets. And uh, very familiar with the beautiful white oak baskets that are, that are common there on the Koala Boundary, uh, Cherokee, North Carolina. So, folks, that's Tommy Cabe again from Cherokee. Uh, he is the forest resource specialist. And let's talk more about fires and, and the impacts that they have on tribal lands. And joining us now from Santa Clara Pueblo in New Mexico is Daniel Denepaugh. He is the forestry director for Santa Clara Pueblo. He is O.K. Awenge. Daniel, welcome to Native America Calling. Thank uh, Tamo. Good morning. Thank Tamo, Daniel. And uh, northern New Mexico ravaged by wildfires, uh, having just experienced the largest fire in the state's history. Please tell us what's been the impact on Santa Clara Pueblo lands. Well, there's, there's been quite a bit. And in the past, I would say 21 years or so, we've dealt with uh, three major fires that that actually overlapped each other and burned about, I would say to date, about almost 80 to 90 percent of the forested areas with uh, either high to um, moderate burns um, right up in the watershed. 80 to 90 percent of tribal lands. And, and how many acres are, are Santa Clara tribal lands? Um, it's going to be well in the 50,000. I don't know the exact. I'm, I'm not, um, I don't have that information pulled up right now, but, um, okay. yeah, there's quite a bit, a few acres there. And I think it's uh, like 90 square miles, a little more than that. So huge, huge amount of acreage. And, and, and what's been the impact on the wildlife, on the trees, on just the overall ecosystem with that much woodland, you know, uh, natural lands just burned like that? Well, you know, the soils, um, not only, you know, you got a stand replacement fire, so a lot of the trees were destroyed. Um, and then, you know, uh, the soils were impacted, you know, becoming hydrophobic. 
and and uh, as soon as we had the monsoon seasons hit here, uh, we had some flooding that uh, happened and actually moved a lot of sediment um, uh, down into the main creek, the stem of the creek, uh, which they had 100% fish kill and kind of scoured out the trees. You know, the remaining live trees that we had there were starting to be impacted by some of that sediment and girdled around the bottoms and started dying off. Um, and, and of course, you know, a lot of the erosion that was uh, coming off of some of those areas. You know, we have about, um, I would say, you know, seven, uh, 27 uh, identified uh, smaller tributaries that branch off into the main stem, which each one of those was impacted. And, and again, we had, you know, severe erosion happening and, and it, erosion, of course, travels uphill. So, you know, we had to put a, a plan together um, soon after the fire there to uh, put a plan together to kind of head some of those areas off, which we took a top-down approach, um, looking for areas where we could actually uh, put some more trees uh, where they would take. But of course, you know, the with the, all the funding that was given to us at that time, um, you know, you were buying a large amount of trees and you were trying to put them in places where um, a lot of them didn't survive just because the soils weren't ready. And, you know, we didn't have any of uh, good microsites for them to, to take. And and then, of course, you know, we, we're dealing with the weather. Again, you know, the not only the flash flooding, but uh, small periods of, of droughts that were, were actually drying up. And, and it was really stressful uh, for the trees that we were putting in. But uh, a lot of it, you know, going back again down the, to the, the main stem of the creek and looking at some of those challenges as well, because we had to actually close off that area to the public and uh, to the Santa Clara people as well, just because it was too dangerous for them to, to go up in there. We, you know, we did have some folks trapped in, a, in an incident up there um, that were working actually in one of the canyon areas. and. Um, one of the floods had hit and actually caught some folks off guard and you know we're we're still reeling from that as well but um a lot of the sediment that moved you know you're looking at tons and tons of the roads were impacted and and completely washed out uh they had four fishing ponds there that were completely just inundated and with uh, sediment and and choked out and you know, still to date, we haven't fixed those. So we're still looking at our long range goals, which are to put a permanent road and then trying to get uh, fish, of course, back in the stream, but also uh, the, the lakes as well and trying to fix those back up. Um, so, you know, there's a number of things that, that I guess um, you could look at as far as, you know, as the remaining forests that are still intact there, uh, we're still trying to preserve those areas, still looking at, um, Again, insect disease, um, but also the hazardous fuel aspect of it. A lot of the the down trees and stuff that are still a hazard out there that are, still need to be cleaned up and burned as well. Daniel, this sounds catastrophic, and I'm, I'm familiar with, with with Santa Clara Pueblo and the lifestyle there. Uh, you folks have a, a lot of people that that fish and, and farm. A lot of hunters, uh, like the Eastern Band, you have a, a long, proud tradition of artists and, and, and black pottery makers. Um, also, you have historic ruins there on Santa Clara lands. 
Uh, how is this just impacting uh, the overall community in terms of, of lifestyle and just uh, the emotional toll of this damage? It's been a big impact, you know, and it's good that you brought that up because, like I had mentioned before, we closed off those areas um, soon after the fire, and not even the public or the the, the people here themselves could uh, go up in that area. And it's been closed for quite a while just because it's been too dangerous. And, you know, the tribe early on recognized that, and, you know, they were worried about the disconnect um, or the future of the generations to come, especially the children here, and that they were losing a part of that tradition um, in that area where, you know, they were able to hunt, they were able to gather stuff and, you know, and again, participate in cultural activities down here in the Pueblo itself. And we, we've we been working, you know, with the schools, also the Santa Fe Indian School, but also the, the local Kapo Community School here as well to make sure that we try to get the kids back more involved with the planting and the landscape of stuff so that way they don't lose any of those traditional mm -hmm. uh, practices or the connection to the land, um, you know, which we we did see early on, um, again, just because things were closed down. And and it's been a big worry, and, and we're still working with the, the schools and, and the tribe here to make sure that we can get those folks up there and, again, you know, looking at it, it's been 20, almost 20 years, and you have a whole generation of kids now that um, haven't even been up there and seen the the canyon uh, prior to the fire. Wow. Well, Daniel, it, it worries me that um, that that some of this this it can't. Is it possible to at this point? Do you think to to get the force back and 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 the the land back to the way it was before? 30 years ago or so, or is it uh, just a matter of really just trying to minimize the damage and, and making do with, with what's happened? You know, I, I think it's a combination of both, you know. Um, I, I hate to, to say, you know, this is devastating or, you know, I there's no hope, but to me there is hope, you know, and, and it's putting things back together again, making sure that we were able to place those things where they need to be. Uh, just for the traditional sake and purpose. But again, that comes with challenges as well because you're looking at uh, the climate's warming and, you know, uh, species might be moving up the hill a little bit faster and it's getting, some of those areas are getting pushed up into areas that are inaccessible to um, some of the folks. So, you know, definitely there's a concern, but at the same time, you know, there's also hope and we're seeing stuff that is growing back and, and you know, the trees and everything. And again, kind of like the cultural importance, you know, the one of the tree species here that's important to Santa Clara is, is the Douglas fir. And it's it's a part of uh, uh, something that they use in their cultural practices um, and traditional dances and stuff like that. So it's important that we, we focus on those areas too to try to bring some of that stuff back to these folks and and getting, again, the children involved with it to plant some of these areas so they can identify where some of those areas are at and, you know, stressing the importance of, of, of those species that are out there. And it's not just one single tree. Uh, again, you know, looking at some of the funding that comes through um, all they're, they're about is, oh, this is a commercial species and, you know, you're supposed to put it here. 
they don't look at the traditional or cultural aspects of things and and that's what kind of um i guess hurts us at a point because then we're limited as to what we can utilize and put back but um uh, again it's just being creative with some of the funding that's out there but also trying to bring some of that stuff back that's not just the trees you know you you have your brush that's out there you have your grass components and those are all important um making sure that they come back and again trying to keep those invasives out you know uh being careful on how we plant things um a lot of times you know uh the forest service after these big burns you know they buy uh, grass seeds in bulk and they just throw it all over the place well that's a concern to the tribe because we don't know if those grasses are pure because there's also invasives that are in there and once they let those go in areas that are are kind of inaccessible then we have another challenge of those outbreaks and trying to deal with that so you know it's important to us to try to replace what was actually there and put it back the way it was you know again kind of going back to you know your question there with the importance of okay. of um Daniel, I'm sorry, we're going to have to take a break. We're going to have to take a short break right now, but uh, when we come back, we'll hear more from Daniel Denipop there at Santa Clara Pueblo. We'll be right back. How me taku e piki o ich igwa ich iginakapo zania wapi CMSL o ich iginakapo wania tuanji la kol zania uti eliayo isama soli atshihantas nish lil yayo healthcare.gov Nishlo Mas Aphayo, 1-800-318-2596. Le Wotchaniki, Medicare, no Medicaid, or Titanhiyo Apelo. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. If there's anything you'd like to add to our conversation about tribal forestry management, please give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. Any questions you have, any comments, any expertise you'd like to share with regard to indigenous knowledge and forest health, please, we're waiting for your call. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We're speaking now with Daniel Denepa. He's the forestry director for Santa Clara Pueblo in northern New Mexico. Daniel, before break, uh, you gave us a, a description of, of the damage that has been caused by um, this horrible wildfire that occurred earlier this year, as well as previous fires. And, and you talked a little bit about the, some of the resources and, and the funding needs there. Uh, what else do you folks need there at Santa Clara Pueblo to, uh, to get these, uh, these lands back to, to strong health? Well, you know, I, I guess a, a part of the, the main challenges are the clearances it takes to make sure that these are done. Uh, that extends into the cultural clearances and to the biological clearances um, to make sure that it's NEPA approved. And, and of course, you know, um, because of the waterways, uh, getting some of the permitting done as well. Those are the main challenges um, just because they take quite a bit of time and of course you know when it comes to funding you have you're limited on your time and 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 that's one of the backdrops to some stuff is you know again looking for those areas that are cleared and you know where's the lowest hanging hanging fruit that we can um actually pull from to to get uh, a lot of the projects done and lining them up uh, um, systematically so that they they kind of work hand in hand in conjunction with each other across the landscape with uh, these fires, uh, 
seeming to be so much more frequent now throughout the West. Uh, what are your concerns going forward with regard to to more fires or warming temperatures and some of these other factors that that folks uh, so often attribute to these changing environmental factors that we're living within? Well, you know, there's there's always that concern again for wildfire coming back and and burning up the remaining percentages that we have left out there. Um, you know, those are, are our biological strongholds. Uh, that's where we we're collecting our seed and and getting everything that we need to uh, kind of put back into the landscape itself. You know, kind of uh, looking at permaculture and and trying to clean up those areas that uh, might have hazardous fuel concerns as far as sparking another fire, but also that have disease and insects, you know, that um, uh, the health, overall general health of the forest and, and the trees themselves. And um, kind of opening up a little bit of those areas, again, for defensible space, but also for the moisture to allow to hit that ground. Um, a lot of times, you know, there's really thick areas that uh, of of trees up there. So when it snows, a lot of that snow doesn't reach the the ground. It actually stays stuck up in the trees there, and you know that's where we're losing some of the moisture. And again, um, kind of looking back into climate change. You know, what are we looking here for the future? Um, you know, what what should we be doing to to kind of compensate for that? Again. You know, uh, it doesn't all, always tie back into the, the fire aspect of it, but you're looking at the floods becoming more frequent, more bigger as well. And, of course, that's always impacting our treatment sites, you know, having to rebuild the roads, having to uh, deal with some of those issues. But, you know, and again, it's just keeping your head up and saying, hey, you know what, maybe this is a good opportunity for us now to see where we need to concentrate our efforts on what parts of the roads do we need to keep fixed and knowing that where those damages are going to be, you know, how do we put the lakes back uh, again to conserve some of that water if we do have one or more of those events? Because, again, we, we've used some of those um, ponds for, for water um, to, to kind of actually battle the fires or combat them up there and preserving the last of what we have. Uh, again, we don't want that again to burn or you know be um, kind of wiped out by insect or disease. So we're mm-hmm. we're very cautious on how we approach things, um, especially from that perspective. You know, and and it's tough because you know you deal with a lot of stuff that's up there in the forest. But Santa Clara has quite a bit of land that extends all the way down into the the bosque areas or the river areas, and you know we start out at 5,000 feet and you go all the way up to 10. 11,000 feet and everything in between. So, you know, we're, we're trying to put all the pieces of the puzzle together to try to maintain the whole landscape all the way up and down. Um, also looking at that fire threat that's in the Wui, that's in the Bosque part, that's up along the river where the, the towns and the people are located. And again, you know, that overall general health of the forest. Well, Daniel, thank you for joining us. Uh, those updates there from Santa Clara Pueblo, and, and we'll be following you folks closely as um, things develop there with regard to your efforts to maintain and foster forest health there on your tribal lands. Our next guest is speaking with us from the Flathead Reservation, Sheena Shaw Pete. She is the reforestation forester with the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes. Sheena Shaw, thank you for joining us. You're a Navajo and Eastern Shawnee. That is correct. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> yes, I am. I'm 
introduction and, and your family history there. And Sheena Shaw, you run a program that works to restore white bark pines, which are both ecologically and culturally important there to the Salish Kootenai people. What's happened to the trees? Why are they at risk? Yeah, I run the white bark pine restoration program up here. And right now the biggest um, problem that we're having is white bark pine, or not white bark pine, excuse me, white pine blister rust. Um, it's attacking the five needle pines all up through the Limber Pine up through Canada, here on uh, the Flathead Indian Reservation, up in Browning as well on the Blackfeet Reservation. We're trying to get a whole establishment across the continent ecosystem amongst all the tribes for white bark pine. It's a high elevation conifer. As I mentioned, it's a five needle pine. There's a, it's a part of the stone family for the conifers, but here on the Flathead Indian Reservation, but for the crown continent ecosystem as well, it's a keystone species. It, um, it's a, if, once it's gone, and if it leaves, it affects everything from mountaintop below. As I said, it's a high elevation pine tree, but also it's um, a, key, a keystone species here for the culture for the Flathead Indian Reservation and for the Salish and Kootenai people here as well as Ponderay, established here. But it was a first food for the people which means that it was um, implemented into their diets from the very beginning, our ancestors, the ancestors here. And that's, um, it's a big tie to the culture. So that's where I have a big focus with the white bark pine restoration as well, is um, that cultural, in, that, uh, just the whole cultural component of the, <laughs> excuse me, of the white bark pine. So, whew. Yeah. <laughs> so the, this disease, uh, white pine blister rust, does it does it take the whole tree? Are you able to actually nurse those trees back to health, or do you just have to to grow new trees? What are these um, these restoration projects? What all do they entail? Yeah, so the white pine blister rust, it's a fungus. It has a kind of a crazy life cycle as well with it. It takes about a year for it to establish fully. Um, the spores have to get onto one part of the plant. It's going to go over to the white part, white part pine. From there, it has to kind of form its little life cycle for the spores to actually then once again come over to germinate and then get inside of the tree. Once it's inside of the tree, um, it's pretty well, it, it goes pretty quick. The tree gets weakened and, um, well, the tree's weak, for then it's more susceptible to the mountain pine beetle that's up here as well but as well then it's just more fuel to fire as we've been talking about here and um it's a uh, the reason why the trees haven't adapted to it yet is that um it's, it's just too it's it was a uh, excuse me it was introduced here way before the trees could actually have time to adapt to it, i guess you could say or not way before but they just didn't have enough time to adapt but we have been researching white bark pine. There's a whole ecosystem society. We have the High Five Pilot Group that's been doing research on it, as well as the Montana University. 
in Montana State University, as well as here at CS, um, FKC, Slash Kootenai College. But here with the tribe also, um, there's lots of people have been researching it, but we've been finding out that there's a genetic resistance amongst these trees. So that is our goal, is that we are looking for these trees that show the genetic resistance. We are trying to collect the seeds from them. And from there, as many seeds that we can collect, then we're going to fire a sow and grow, try to get as many plantations that we can get just to continuously plant as much as we can to beat it out and just hope for the best. It's a slow growth tree. So everything that we plant, I won't get to see it in my lifetime. So really it's just for the future generations to come for my grand, great grandkids, I'd say. So that's some, it's a battle that we are willing to go and that we've been fighting actually, I should say. Mm -hmm. But amongst with the blister rust as well, I mean, we have the mountain pine beetle that affects it as well. So the trees are susceptible to both. We have the um, encroachment of fire and other species as well with the climate change coming in there. Um, but our main focus for everything, though, is I say the cultural component to it. So when we're putting forth our restoration efforts or just even in general our forestry efforts and te uh, the techniques and everything that we do, we are looking more for the um, ecosystem restoration, the balance, and looking for mainly the main components and everything that will be helpful to continue the cultural purpose here for everybody, but as well that will have that balance throughout the forest for all the ecosystems. <laughs> okay. So these seedlings, um, it could take as long as 80 or, or 90 years, I read, for um, for the results to, to show and uh, so it's it's a it's a long term project, going to take a lot of years. And uh, Shinisha, I understand uh, you were given the nickname, the White Bark Pine Witch. Tell us how you got that nickname. <laughs> um, <clears throat> when I was um, at, when I was attending the Salish Kootenai College, and in my program, my advisor, Dr. Rick Everett, he was talking about how grand and wonderful the three top ladies for white bark pine restoration and he would call them um you know the queens of white bark and i'd be like oh well i want to be a queen of white bark and he goes well that title's already taken <laughs> and i was like well i can be a prince i was like i don't want to be no princess though and i was like he goes well um then we're talking about the three witches and I don't know how it came and I was like, well, I could just be the white bark pine witch. <laughs> and we had a good laugh, a good cackle around, <laughs> around the oh cauldron. So, but, uh, <laughs> but from there it stuck. And I don't know, we even told my, my boss now, Tony Cachola Jr. And his forestry department head, we even mentioned it to him and he laughed and he was like, I like it. And, from there, it stuck with American Forest. They um, they made the shout out for it as well, <laughs> kind of put it out there. And uh, as you probably read it before you found out, so it's it's stuck, but it's it's a good one. It's catchy. It's, it's, it's really catchy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us more, uh, Sheena Shah, about how the trees are important to the ecosystem. And also, I'm curious, are you able to work with, with other tribes or learn from other tribal communities with regard to the, the, white, the white pine restoration project? 
Um, let me get a drink of water. So, with uh, the eat, um, so the importance for the Keystone, uh, well, white bark pine, since it is just a higher elevation up in for here on the reservation, it's going about six to eight thousand feet. So it's up amongst the timberline, the upper subalpine habitat. And here, as we are known for Flathead Lake, and we have really pristine waters, and um, it's so beautiful here. And with the um, vegetation, the white bark pine is the main component for it, though, because since it's in that higher elevation, it helps with the erosion. Um, the glacier melts off, provides the shade as well. But also, the main thing about white bark pine is the seeds. So, white bark pine seeds, pine nuts, they have a very high protein source. So that's where it came into um, a first food for the Salish people here, and Puni people, and as well as the uh, grizzlies is a really big uh, uses the nuts for protein source, but also it's a big um, animal here for the culture. But there's the Clark's Nutcracker, which is this bird, and technically it is a keystone seed dispersal species for white bark pine. So mm. it has a cultural component with it as well. And this is where when I go and talk to classes or students or do presentations, there's the that's where really the cultural connection is right there with the stories and the creation stories where it comes with the plants and all everything around as we would call an ecosystem, but it's just all the animals and the plants that we have always made sustainable through our practices just as native people here that we are um you know we're from the earth so we uh here we are looking into uh looking uh excuse me here <laughs> i go off on these tangents with this white bark pine <laughs> oh no that's okay that's okay i'm sorry that we are gonna have to wrap up the show we're, we're running a little low on time but uh i want to thank all of our guests today tommy cabe Daniel Denepa, and of course, Sheena Shaw Shaw. They're, these folks are out working hard, and uh, they're taking care of our tribal lands, and uh, they're sharing their expertise on forest health with us today. So we really appreciate everything that they do. Folks, join us again tomorrow as we take a look at some innovative Native podcasts. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. This Native American Heritage Month, remember, one in three Native American adults have high blood pressure. Check it at your nearest community health center. If the numbers are above 120 over 80, talk to a healthcare professional. Native community well-being is very important. You can take action by visiting heart.org slash hbpcontrol. This support provided in partnership with HHS slash OMH and HRSA under cooperative agreements CPIMP 2112-27 and CPIMP 2112-28. Local tribal museums are the experts of indigenous histories, cultures, and values with the tools to educate the public. On the first National Tribal Museums Day on December 3rd, participating museums will offer no-cost admission, special exhibits, and live cultural demonstrations. Learn more at indian-affairs.org slash Tribal Museums Day. The Association on American Indian Affairs supports this program.
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanic Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.